Welcome to Bartender Journey, podcast number 114. My name is Brian Vincent Weber. This is a podcast that talks all about bartending and cocktails and spirits. And this week we're sponsored by Chateau Michel Wine Estates, their Shake the Vine contest. You can enter your original cocktail recipe at shakethevine.com and you could be one of eight finalists to win $1,000 towards your travel to Tales of the Cocktail this year, July 2015, that is. And you can, uh, you could be, if you win, you can get $5,000. There's also two runner-up prizes of $500 in addition to the 1000 So, hey, this is pretty good. And with uh, eight finalists, it's pretty good chances. That's that's great. So we're going to talk to Josh Payne in a minute. He's one of the organizers of this event, and he's going to give us some tips on how to make your entry stand out from the crowd. And my guest today will be Reed Mittenbuehler, and his book is called Bourbon Empire, The Past and Future of America's Whiskey. It's all about the history of bourbon, its roots and evolution, and we talk about the role advertising and marketing have played and how things are not always as they seem in the whiskey world. It's a great book, and we have a fascinating conversation. Oh, next week on the show, I visit Colin Spolman. He's the co-founder and master distiller of Kings County Distillery in Brooklyn, and he's also the co-author of the Kings County Distillery Guide to Urban Moonshining, How to Make and Drink Whiskey. It's uh, the distillery is a really cool place, and uh, he gave me a tour, and we did a little tasting, and uh, it was a lot of fun. It's it, I love it. It's it's in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and it's a um, really cool location and a really cool old building where they're making some great whiskey there. So the book of the week this week, of course, is Reed's Bourbon Empire book, and you'll find a link to that on my website. You can go sign up for uh, Amazon Prime on my website, too, and you can get free shipping on tons of items from Amazon, and you also get access to the uh, Amazon streaming video service with that. So that's 30 days free if you click through from my website, bartenderjourney.net. Yeah, check that out. It's worth. I use Amazon Prime all the time. We... we uh, buy a lot of stuff from Amazon, uh, books and other and you know, you know how you know Amazon, you can buy anything on there. And uh, we also use the uh, video streaming service quite a bit because uh, we've been kind of cutting the cord here in my house, getting rid of uh, a lot of the cable boxes and we went down to the cheapest possible TV package you could get. <laughs> so uh, there's only like maybe eight channels <laughs> or nine channels, you know, the major ones. And uh, but we watch everything streaming on, uh, you know, on Amazon and others. Hey, this music we're listening to right now is called Star Day by Pontington Bear. In industry news this week, Tales of the Cocktail announced the Spirited Award nominees. And you remember last week on the show, I hope you heard it, it was with Jeffrey Morgenthaler, and uh, he, we had a great conversation. And he, I, I posted that episode last, uh, last week, and that same evening, a couple hours after I posted, the nominations came out, and he was nominated in not one, but three different categories. He was nominated for Best American Bartender and Best uh, Cocktail and Spirits Writer, and his book was nominated for, the bar book was nominated for Best New Cocktail or Bartending Book. So, uh, yeah, we had, a, we had a great conversation. I hope you heard it. If not, why not? Just uh, subscribe to the show, and you'll get the shows as soon as they become available, as soon as they're posted. So, uh, yeah, make sure you subscribe. And if you haven't heard last week's show with Jeffrey, please check that out. Um, and while we're on the subject of subscribing and iTunes and things like that, uh, please do me a favor and go and give me some rating. Give the show some ratings on iTunes. And uh, ratings and reviews help so much. And uh, it only take you a minute. I spend hours and hours a week on this show, so you can uh, do me 
a favor, spend a few minutes and uh, give some ratings and reviews. I'll tell you exactly how to do it on your uh, on your phone if you have an iPhone, or it probably works the same way pretty much on Android. Launch Apple's podcast app, tap the search tab, enter the name of the podcast you want to rate or review, so search for Bartender Journey. Tap on the blue search key at the bottom right. Tap the album art for the podcast. Mine is blue. You'll see, uh, and it says Bartender Journey on it with a little tiny martini glass. And uh, tap the reviews tab. Tap write a review at the bottom. Enter your iTunes password to log in. Tap on the stars to leave a rating. Five stars is the most. That's the most you can give. I'm not telling you how many to give. I'm just telling you five is the most. And then you can enter your title for the, uh, you can enter, you'll see what to do. Enter a little title and put and leave a little review. Give it, you know, one sentence is enough. That'd be fine. And then tap send. So thank you. I'd really appreciate it. Do it right now. I'll wait. Uh, oh, back to the Tales of the Cocktail Spirited Awards. Camper English's Alcademics.com was nominated. For, you remember I spoke to Camper a few weeks ago in episode 112, and he, he was nominated for Best Cocktail and Spirits Publication. Also nominated in that category was Liquor.com, and uh, that's a great resource if you don't know about it. Liquor.com, there's tons of interesting articles on there, and uh, you can even, if you feel like getting in on the action, you can submit your own recipes or articles about cocktails or spirits or whatever uh, on drinkwire.liquor.com, and you'll even see Bartender Journey on there. All right, let's talk to Josh Payne about the Shake the Vine cocktail competition. All right. Well, I'm here with Josh Payne from Barback USA, and uh, we're here to talk about the Shake the Vine contest. Thanks for coming on the show, and thanks for being a sponsor of the show. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, great. So tell us all about this contest. Sounds like a lot of fun. So as you may have heard, wine cocktails have been a thing for a while, but just recently in the cocktail world, it's becoming more of a forefront. Uh, And we got together with – I work for a company called Back Bar USA – and we got together with uh, St. Michelle Wine Estates, and they wanted to kind of bring this to the forefront and bring, the, bring this big and kind of do something really cool that's going to get in everybody's minds and at the same time give something back to the bartending community and give back a great experience uh, for the person who wins the contest. Cool. So, yeah, well, why don't we start with uh, the rules of the contest and, and, and then how you enter. Basically, it's super simple. Um, you just need to create a cocktail with one of our, uh, one of our wines. Uh, we have four wines that we have to choose from. However, there are actually more that you can choose from listed on the website, but we're, we're pushing the main four. And that's at www.shakethevine.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then simply add in uh, your choice of mixers, spirits, uh, whatever you would like, a garnish, take a picture, and then just submit that to the website. Nice. Depending on how fast you make the cocktail, the submission process is relatively easy. <laughs> All right. And uh, so what are some of the criteria? What, what are, give us some hints on how to win. <laughs> Hints on how to win. If you can use a wine and our liqueur, that is definitely uh, something we like to see. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the, uh, the, the orange liqueur, the correct, uh-huh. and the Torres orange liqueur. Mm-hmm. And then we're also looking for things that can be replicated relatively easily across multiple uh, chains, multiple restaurants. What we let, what we really like to see, the homemade uh, syrups. You know, mm-hmm. it's something that not everyone is able to replicate. Yeah, so we're absolutely. looking we're looking for things that are replicatable, things that are easy to understand and simple. Um, as as you know, some of the most genius things in the world are are simple things. 
Yeah, I think that's a thing that really uh, should be accentuated more in these cocktail competitions because, yeah, you can make something great and obscure, but if nobody else, you know, can make it or wants to go to the bother of making it, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of a waste. Yeah, and of course, we're looking for things like taste, obviously, uh, visual appeal, and the prominence of the wine's flavor. Um, it doesn't, we, we want people to know that there's wine in it, even without having to read the menu. Mm. So that's that's the unique thing too. It, and it, it's it's a complex flavor profile, um, so it, it can be pretty challenging. But yeah. if you can get it right, it's awesome. Yeah, you don't see a heck of a lot of wine cocktails out there. I mean, like you say, they're starting to pop up now and now and then. But uh, it, it can be uh, a little challenging to get to get that ingredient in a cocktail and have it really um, you know feel like it's part of the cocktail, the wine. Yeah, exactly. I will tell you some of the some of the contestants that have submitted so far are pretty amazing. Mm. I didn't. And the pictures they submit to are all equally amazing. They're yeah. like professionally done po photos. I'm like, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Actually, there's a seminar during Tales of the Cocktail about uh, cocktail photography. No, no kidding. Yeah. I'll, have to, I'll have to catch that. It's not at the same time. Yeah, it's. I, I actually have a conflict with something else, so I can't make it myself, but I'd love to go. I wish I could. So, uh, so who are the uh, judges? The judges are still being finalized, but we have the, the main judge, which is Seong Ha Lee. Um, he's well known in the cocktail community. He's won Diageo World Class. He's been all over the world. His accolades, literally, when he asked, when I asked for him to send me his bio, he sent me two pages of accolades and awards. <laughs> and this guy is uh, one of the best bartenders in the business and in the world. Mm. Uh, and he's the one who's going to be uh, hosting the contest in our stead and uh, leading the judging panel. Okay. And he's he's out of Vegas, right? That's right. Yeah, he works at a place called Tokyo Three Six Five down here in, in Las Vegas, downtown Las Vegas. All right. Well, uh, and the uh, location for this contest is kind of a uh, secret at the moment. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll break the secret right now right, for here you. Here we go. Here we go. It is. Um, you may be familiar with Sucre. It's a, it's a, a really great dessert shop mm. uh, in in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Right above that, though, they've opened up a restaurant called Salon, oh, and nice. it's amazing. They do great cocktails there. Great dishes. A really nice design and decor on the inside. It's going to be the perfect setting uh, for it, and it's only like two blocks away from the Hotel Montleone. Very cool, and it's uh, invitation only. Is that right? Yeah, we're keeping it small. So basically, uh, contestants, judges, people who work for Chateau Saint Michel and Saint Michel Wine Estates, and of course, uh, friends and family. All right, but it'll be it'll be it'll, it'll be pretty serious. You know, fifteen minutes. Do your do your presentation. Do your cocktail. Taste the cocktail with the judges. On to the next one. I mean, this is worth f- it's five grand we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any any chance we could wrangle up two tickets for uh, my listeners? Absolutely. There we yeah, go. Yeah, it's a it's a great idea. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, I know. I've heard from uh, several listeners who are gonna are going down for tails this year, and uh, yeah. So if if they don't win the contest, that is, uh, maybe we we can uh, hook them up with a couple of tickets to get in. Yeah, I would. Love, that'd be great. Let's give away two tickets, and and we'll have some. Uh, have some of your people there. All right, awesome. Very cool. All right, well, I won't keep you too long. We just want to remind everybody to go to shakethevine.com and enter your cocktail. Uh, you'll see you'll see the rules there about which which uh, wines and, and the orange liqueur that uh, need to be incorporated to be eligible. And uh, hope, hope you all join and, and uh, hope you win. <laughs> Good luck. And as a, as a final note, uh, we are flying eight finalists out there up to $1,000 reimbursement. So it's a pretty good odds of coming up and uh and when taking something home even if you don't win the grand prize yeah that's yeah that's eight you know eight finalists that's pretty cool and then did i see there's also besides the five hundred five thousand dollar prizes two five hundred dollar prizes for runners up 
That's right. If you get silver or bronze, uh, you're walking away with 500 too. Hey, it was a great contest. Maybe I should have entered the contest instead of covering it. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is awesome. I'm really glad we came to uh, an arrangement here, and I'm, I'm excited uh, for the partnership and, and to go to the event. Cool. Very cool. Thanks so much for having us on. I'm looking forward to meeting you. Yeah, same here, Josh. Cheers. All right, you heard it here first. An exclusive on Bartender Journey. The venue for the Shake Divine event has been announced, and we have two tickets to give away. So if you'd like to, if you're going to be in New Orleans for Tales of Cocktail this year, uh, the event takes place on Wednesday of Tales of Cocktail. That's Wednesday, July 15th. 2015 so if you'd like to win the tickets let's do uh let's do email that'll be easiest shoot me an email vince.bartender at gmail.com put shake the vine tickets in the subject line and uh we'll get you get somebody in there but hey if you're going to tales of cocktail the first thing you should do is enter this contest because that would be an even better way to get in right so uh go to shakethevine.com and enter and shoot me an email too just in case you're not chosen as one of the finalists all right, so you'll want to enter that contest. Great contest. And uh, do it quick, though. As I record this today, it's June the 16th, 2015. And you need to be uh, you need to have your entry in by June the 30th and be ready to go to Tales of the Cocktail in the jo- middle of the July. I'll be there. And if you're going to be there, please, like I said, shoot, shoot me an email. And uh, if you're interested in tickets to the Shake Divine event, we're going to have two to give away here. And uh, we're also going to try to get together. I've heard from a couple other listeners who are going to be down there. And we're going to try to get together probably at one of the Hotel Monteleon pool parties and share some cocktails and uh, meet in person, real life. That would be, that's, I'm looking forward to that. In addition to email, you can find me on Twitter at Barkeep Tips and find the uh, Facebook page. Just search Facebook for Bartender Journey. And of course, the website is bartenderjourney.net. All right, let's talk to author Reed Mittenbuehler. Hey, Brian. Hey, Reed. How are you? Good. Oh, we're on video. You can see my uh, ridiculous uh, mess here. Uh, actually, I can't see you. Oh, okay. Well, good. <laughs> <laughs> it's like. Yeah, you can see my, my stack of books here. Growing and growing. I was going to say, you actually have a very clean looking like setup. I've got bikes like turned upside down behind me. <laughs> yeah, this room, this room here is dedicated to uh, books and uh, computers. So I got it. No, hey. <laughs> we, got, uh, we got your book here, Bourbon Empire. Very good, uh, interesting book. Interesting book. I like it. Thanks. You talk about how bourbon's history is really tied to the history of America, you know, and it's it's fascinating how true that is. Yeah, you know, it almost writes itself that way. It's got all those little touch points, and they really do match up more more than more than other drinks. Well, I find it so interesting that the whiskey trade kind of grew out of the fact that the farmers had excess crops and they needed a way to preserve it, and then also distilling it down to a spirit made it easier to transport. Yeah. And and I think that that, you know, it kind of gets forgotten today when we think of brand names, like we put all this stuff in a modern context of brands. But back then, you know, it really was just kind of a commodity. It was like a bulk commodity. Yeah. You know, and people weren't making it necessarily because they just had this dream of making whiskey. Um, It was because that was sort of the only thing available, you know, as a way to preserve the value of this crop without it spoiling. Then you have that break where you start to see brands develop largely after the civil war but you see brand names kind of take hold and the industry really changes around that i think you see the quality change around that too because you have more of this incentive for producers to kind of up their game a little bit because Mm -hmm. their name is attached to it as a brand and then you've got all the brand battles 
you know, trademark law was in its infancy. You know, one person would have a very successful brand and somebody else would be like, oh, well, that's selling well. So then they would just slap the same name on their bottle and you have all of these weird, you know, E.H. Taylor and James Pepper and these early industry leaders, they were suing everybody left and right for mm. stealing their names. And wow. when you call it America, you know, this uniquely American spirit, I think these big lawsuits are part of that. You know, we're very <laughs> litigious, I guess that's the word. Right, uh, right. Legalistic society. And so, and you still, like right now, there's a whole flurry of yeah. lawsuits going on. Yeah, yeah, with the uh, the handmade and the uh, small batch and stuff. and As well as legal cl- you know, legal wranglings over... Like who has the right to the heritage of certain names, you know, right. the authenticity thing you've got. So that I think that's very interesting. Like who gets to own the history? Yeah. In a lot of cases, it's whoever can pony up the most in a legal battle and buy a lapsed trademark. And it's like, well, is that a real connection? I mean, it is in a way. And then in another way, it's like, well, you just bought a trademark. Right. For people who don't know what we're talking about, there was, there was a particular brand name of bourbon, right? That, which brand, which name was it? That, that, uh, that, Bombers. That, which one? Bomberger's is one. It's mm. kind of, that's going on right now, so that's who knows how that'll play out. But they, it was made years ago, and then the trademark expired, and somebody else said, "Oh, look at that! I can I could just make it and put that name on it." <laughs> yeah, I think those stories are so fascinating too, because people buy into those. Stories. That's the thing. It's as like the storytelling business. I really think as much as it is the booze business, the story is people debate this, but just as important as the liquid. Yeah. Um, that story in the bottle, that sense of authenticity and heritage that's created, people really buy into that. I, I think sometimes the taste of some of the stuff, you know, some people are going to hate me for saying this, but it's almost irrelevant. I mean, you have a couple <laughs> company heads who have even admitted that, like, yeah, you know, people connect to these brands that they associate with whatever it is they associate it with. Um, so there's a big commercial value in that kind of stuff. And these stories about how these people sometimes just created these tales out of thin air are really the are really better than the tales themselves sometimes, you know? <laughs> right. All this kind of swashbuckle, you know, it's like really fascinating. These guys are real characters who created this industry. They were not choir boys. They were, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're hilarious. Well, that's a theme that runs through your book. Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then it's fun. You know, it's fun. I, you know, it's important to remember in the back of your head, like, okay, these are used in a way to trigger psychological things that, you know, we're going to have, but also... When you go online today, you look at the whiskey geeks, like you go into some of the social media forums. And, you know, I love these guys on one hand, but on the other hand, you're sort of like, you need to take a deep breath. You know, some people yeah. get really upset. Like, this really flusters them. And, and I get it. You know, yeah. You kind of see it both ways, but you're also right. like, it is, it's supposed to be fun. Like, it's when people right. use it to relax, it's enjoyable. So let's not, uh, you can see some of their heads are practically ready to explode, <laughs> veins bulging on their foreheads. Like, they're liars. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to. Just go take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. It's like it's not, it's not supposed to be that serious. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you say uh, you say bourbon is comfort food, and it's a it's kind of blue collar. But that that kind of that worked to their advantage in some way. It's a look or company's advantage in some ways, but it also prevents them from positioning bourbon as a luxury product. Yeah, that's a subplot of the history of American whiskey I like to explore in the book. You know, it's, I think it's an inherently simple product. You know, it's just some grains that are fermented and distilled and thrown into a barrel to age. It really is nothing crazy. It's just whiskey. Um, but you have this theme and you see it extending back to the 1800s, people trying to take this inherently simple, humble product and find ways to make it seem fancier, mm. you know, so that they can charge more for it. Right. You know, bourbon, 
you know, it can overrate, you know, older is not better. You know, that has always kind of presented a dilemma. And you saw that, that come up in the 1950s a little bit. You know, these companies wanted to expand overseas, um, but they were competing against Scotch, which generally is aged a little bit longer. And there's a whole lot of, you know, kind of technical reasons why that is. And why that, but it's not necessarily better for those reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you see these companies kind of struggling. And the New York Times, I found this one great article in the 1950s, and they were looking at how the product wasn't really changing, but these companies trying to get access to all that post-war income, you know, that big economic boom that happened after World War II. Mm-hmm. They were saying, you know, they were dressing up this stuff in fancy containers, and the New York Times ran this story, you know, about how they can't prove the whiskey, so they're just putting it in a fancier, a fancier container. And mm. then when you see these companies trying to expand overseas, they realize nobody has a preconceived notion about whiskey. In the U.S., it was kind of humble, sort of blue collar, and that had prevented them from charging more. Mm. But overseas, their advertising campaign, Jim Beam is a perfect example. You know, in the U.S., that was, you know, kind of humble. It was, it was respected, you know, but the, the standard white label stuff. Mm. When you saw their campaigns in Europe, it was like guys in coattails and <laughs> top hats and tuxedos. And, <laughs> you know, it was like, it, you know, no one knows what it is. So let's just maybe try to make it into something different than what Americans think it is. And if we can up the price, and yeah, you, know, you see it today with vodka and you see it with all these things. I mean, they're, I mean, let's just say it, they're largely a lot of these vodka brands are largely indistinguishable, but they'll have huge price differences. And I think a lot of those are because they have better marketing campaigns with bigger celebrities. Yeah. It's crazy how much the, uh, the, the, the bottle and the label can influence you, man. <laughs> I mean, it, oh, yeah. you know, even to an educated consumer, it's still, it's, you know, yeah. it still uh, affects you. Yeah. The, one of the trade groups involved in the industry, they've broken it out, like what is really selling today. Mm-hmm. And you see the market broken up into three primary categories. You know, we'll just call them you know, the bottom shelf, the middle shelf, and the upper shelf. And they see that the biggest growth rates are happening with those top shelf whiskeys. Yeah. Like people want to, you know, today's trends in drinking, you know, people don't, they're not really drinking more volume wise, but they drink better yeah. or what they think is better. Yeah. Um, so you see lots of growth in these so-called, you know, quote unquote fancier brands. And so the companies see this. So when they're introducing new brands to the marketplace, they're trying to place them in that super premium category. Yeah. And, with whiskey, you know, which is kind of like the perfect peach, it kind of hits its peak, I, I think, you know, at a re- relatively simple place. Mm. Uh, they don't always live up to that hype. You do see a lot of just fancier labeling or these really weird terms like you know, small batch and handmade, you know, artisan, all these things that hit something in our brains that make us think it's better. Or honestly, you can just up the price. People naturally yeah. equate higher price. I know. There's lots of examples of that in the wine world where guys are, you know, they can't sell this product and they're, there was one fellow I was reading about in California, and he made an announcement. He says, my, my wine's not selling. I'm going to double the price because that's what people think is better yeah. and watch it sell. And he did just that, and it started flying off the shelves. And it was crazy. And I just remember that's such a great lesson to always keep in mind with some of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, this, the stories of old whiskey and, and old bars and old cocktails, it, it's so cool. It's its almost like drinking a time machine, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. But, you know, uh, but as you say, on the other hand, the stories are a lot of times just that, stories. <laughs> yeah, and they're good stories. They're good stories, too. Yep. That's kind of why we've returned to it today. You know, spirits especially, they're so popular. I think there's that nostalgic element, you know. I know I realize every era is complicated in its own ways and people like to say, well, 
it's different today or times are confusing. You know, everyone thinks their own era is confusing, but today, you know, we have our own kind of confusion. And, you know, I think people are a little unsettled right now. You've got a lot of economic changes, um, especially with millennials. It's like got all these new industries and technology and they're tearing down all the old ones and people are confused by that. Technology has connected us in a lot of ways, but I think it's disconnected us a little bit. You've got yeah. restaurants full, of, you know, bars full of people staring at their phones yeah. <laughs> instead of talking to each other. And so I think that this return in whiskey, there's a number of reasons behind it, but one of them I think is this nostalgia thing. We look at all this iconography on the bottles, all this labeling, all this old timey stuff, and it brings up a sense of the past that I think people, and nostalgia drives it, in a way kind of want to return to in ways. And this is part of that, I think, an attempt to do that just a little bit, you know, not to philosophize about it too much. But I, I think that's part of the part of it, you know? Yeah, I agree. Well, uh, the definition of bourbon, the uh, the literal the definition has kind of been romanticized a little bit, you know, the, the new American oak barrels, the, the, it actually doesn't say that exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, in the regulations, um, in order to be called bourbon, yeah, it's kind of a laundry list of things. Um, and it does have to be charred new oak barrel. Um, but it doesn't but say American. Do, oh, yeah, right. No, it doesn't say American. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it could be French. And that's interesting, too, because you have these different flavor profiles that you get from different types of oak. Mm -hmm. People use, generally, they use white oak. They don't have to. Mm -hmm. But it's just the wood itself, it, it's tight enough. It'll keep the liquid and it won't leak too much. But it's just porous enough. You know, the spirit can kind of soak in. And, you know, if you use French oak, uh, the limousine, I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, um, L-I-M-O-U-S-I-N, that limousine oak that they use in France, mm -hmm. you get a spicier thing. Mm -hmm. Maker's Mark 46 puts a little bit of that in, you know, when mm -hmm. they do the x-ray finishing thing to that. Yeah, one. Maker's 46, good stuff. Japanese oak is a little different. So that's kind of interesting. And I think with craft distilling, we'll start to see when it really starts to reach its potential, and we'll start seeing a lot more experimentation maybe with different types of oak and, and wood, you know, in all kinds of ways. Yeah. Well, I, we'll see that with the uh, the craft distillers, right? Because they uh, yeah. they have a little more freedom to uh, to try new and different things, I think. Yeah. Well, I think what confuses some people too, though, is whiskey. These big distillers have also learned in a way that their beer counterparts didn't. I think big beer sort of saw craft brewery and was like, you know, whatever, we're just going to keep on doing what they're doing. And so they've just started to buy these craft breweries now because they realize the public really is shifting, truly is shifting, especially right. for beer. Yeah, but these big—I was always kind of surprised. These big corporations like you know, Jim Beam and Buffalo Trace—they're very experimental. You know, Buffalo Trace has the Warehouse X, where it has all these climate-controlled experiments and these things. And Jim Beam had started to do experiments with like triticale and oat, like an oated bourbon and this kind of stuff. And so you see that, and they kind of have sensed, I think. People want this stuff. They're curious about this stuff. They like these these experimental products, and we'll see if they stick. And so they've kind of jumped in and put a lot of money into it as, as well. So it's kind of nice to see that both sides of the industry have kind of responded to this. You've got a lot of small craft folks like Corsair is, is a great example that just let it all hang out there. It's mm -hmm. experimenting wildly, but the big companies are also doing it. So it'll be curious to see what, what lands out of that. Yeah, well, you, you said in the book that the craft distillers in the scope of things don't really have that much influence, but you know, you do see the, the big guys kind of reacting to the little guys yeah. and you know, I don't want to say they're running scared, but they it does seem like they're they're uh they're having to react to what's going on. Yeah, yeah. I love that. 
yeah. statistic. You know, right now you hear so much about craft, but it's less than five percent of the overall volumes you know on the market. Mm. Keeping in mind that Brown Foreman and Beam and Ford, all these companies, they it's tremendous volumes. They're a tiny portion of the overall sales, but they get way more coverage in press. Right. So their influence far extends their actual output, mm. and the companies see that. And everyone, and that's also why I think you see so many. You know, you see so many independent marketers. You know, they're called NDPs. You know, creating a brand and they make it look small, like it's a craft thing. But they realize that these big companies they do a very good job. So they just buy the product from them and they slap their own label on it. And whiskey geeks all know this, and they know how to trace the provenance of their brands, but the general drinker still really doesn't. When they see that label, they think that's an independent outfit, I, I think, and they buy it up for yeah. that reason. That's well, what they want, that smallness. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess we should expose that for people who don't know who are listening. <laughs> that A lot of these uh, brands uh, all come from the same distillery, and they're, they're just maybe slightly different formulation or different aging, maybe, but they, they're different labels on the same product, basically. Yeah, and it's and it's a good product. That's the thing yeah. you, you want oh, to call it. Some of them are delicious. Game. You know. Yeah, I mean, so, like renowned. You know, there's some reactions to the book a little bit where people who don't understand how this industry is structured, and this is how it's been structured since the 19th century. Yeah, it's so funny when they do DBAs, doing business as there used to be cases where a distillery would have a shingle hanging out front with the name of a, a brand, mm-hmm. and they'd produce, and then they just take the shingle out and put in the name of another brand, and whatever brand they're making that day, they just mm-hmm. shingle it out, you know. <laughs> And so it's been that way forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you tell people that, though, they get really upset. It's like you've punctured this illusion for yeah. them. I mean, yeah. I tell this to people, and it's like, what? I mean, you're that guy at the party. You're like going yeah. around being a killjoy, <laughs> like, oh, hey, guess what? And people oh. are like, oh, my God. Don't tell you. me. I put yeah. my hands over my ears. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you're, and you're like, it's not necessarily like a bad, you know, I'm not trying to be some jerk here, but I just, you know, it's, just understanding how it's structured so you know about the product you're buying. That's important. Know about the product you're buying. Yeah. Well, well, Scotch kind of reinvented itself at some point. And do you think that is similar to what's going on with bourbon right now or it's a different sort of different thing? Yeah, it's, well, it's both reinventions. I think you're right. Um, see, those are my favorite stories from, from, from the book. You know, Scotch has always had that reputation as being fancier. Right. Yeah. And I think it's funny because both, you know, when Scotch had started, you know, late 17, early 1800s, it really started same time as bourbon. You know, both of these places, Scotland and the Ohio River Valley, you know, Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky, Illinois, where these places, these styles of whiskey really emerged, were these remote and isolated backwaters, you know. Yeah. People living there were these scary loners living out <laughs> in the woods. They didn't have very good reputations. And it was certainly that way for Scotland. But then you see Scotland ride this wave of voguish popularity. You had you know, the poetry of Robert Burns, which kind of reinvents the place. You know, it's, it's very romanticized. You've got Queen Victoria. She buys Balmoral Castle. Um, you know, and it became kind of a classy place. Mm-hmm. And then you have this, this aphid, um, Phloxra, which destroyed grape crops. Mm-hmm. And the upper class drinks of the time, you know, it was wine and brandy and that sort of thing. But with the aphid destroying the grape crop, all that went away. Um, they had to replace the vines, which I actually did with a lot of American rootstocks. And you have these these people, you know, over in Europe looking for a substitute to these yeah. grape-based drinks. And so whiskey is sort of the natural alternative. And by the end of the 19th century, scotch and soda have become the drink of the English gentleman. 
and you have the British Empire expanding, and they're taking Scotch you know, all across the globe. And so Scotch kind of got this great image makeover, and it's always been seen as a fancy, sophisticated drink. Bourbon, rye, you know, all these American styles of whiskey, it's not like they're made to any lower standards or anything like that. There's no reason they should be considered less sophisticated, but they, you know, Kentucky, the places that are really connected to these kinds of drinks, you know, this is kind of flyover country still today for a lot of people. Unfortunately, I, I love Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of it's where the corn kind of blends into the horizon. People are like, oh, you know, it's 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 rural. It's kind of yeah. so that that plays in some of these companies' favors. I think you know, the, I, I like to say that when we drink, you know, the drink in our hand, it's almost like a fashion accessory. It's a symbol. It's like a code. It's it's we're saying something about ourselves with whatever it is we're drinking. And with bourbon, it's always kind of been, you know, I'm I'm not pretentious. You know, I'm kind of. I'm a normal. I'm a normal person. Yeah, but it never the this area, Kentucky, never really got that kind of image makeover. Yeah, um, and so it was always sort of seen traditionally as a little. I don't want to say lowbrow, but you know, working class. Mm-hmm. And you can see that in the 1950s and 60s, as bourbon, we were saying before, as it tried to expand in overseas markets, they realized this and they tried to make themselves fancy for these new audiences that really had no idea what it was, didn't have those perceptions of it. Right. And so today it really is changing though. It has been seen. It is like a, it's getting fancified just a little bit. It is getting upmarketed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, I was sitting in, uh, I was sitting at the bar at Gramercy Tavern recently and, uh, you know, a a couple of businessmen walk in and ask, uh, can I see the bourbon list? (laughs) But that was like a really, you know, telling sign, you know. <laughs> yeah, because not that long ago it would have been the scotch list and then, you know, yeah. as well it was the wine list and yeah. then it was sort of, you know, the French have a great expression for this. Um, it translates to the nostalgia of the mud. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of like what's old is new again. And they, you know, and basically it refers to things that at one point were looked down upon becoming popular hmm. and they become popular for the same reasons that cause them to be looked down upon. Like blue jeans would be a perfect example. You know, the dungarees, these, this is the attire of the working poor. This is rough clothing. They're wearing this to work at their hard labor jobs. And then you see it become a rebellious act. Like I am of the people, you know, mm. people are wearing, now today you've got CEOs wearing blue jeans in boardrooms kind of as a, it becomes a different kind of fashion statement. And I think for American whiskeys, especially bourbon, have benefited a little bit from that. It was like what was old-fashioned and kind of out of style before, you know, like hush puppies, like a lot of things. <laughs> it's now coming back into this kind of fashion precisely for what made it uncool, so to speak, to begin with. Yeah, oh, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of yeah. sense. But, uh, well, talking about scotch, scotch imports to America the uh, are down, actually. And do you think that's uh, due to renewed interest in American whiskey or what's going on there? Yeah, so I actually I actually hadn't seen that stat, but it's um, interesting to me. And there could be a whole slew of reasons. You do have American whiskey that could be cutting into that. Also, the prices for this stuff. There's been a big boom in sales globally, um, and prices have been going kind of crazy, you know, mm-hmm. as we've all seen. I can remember the days 10, 15 years ago walking into liquor stores, and this stuff, it was just so cheap on yeah. the shelf. Right. I mean, these brands today that you can't find and everyone mm-hmm. kind of fawns over. I I don't joke when I say I saw them covered in dust. Yeah. And Scotch, which does rule the roost as far as global sales go. I mean, it, by volume, it, it it outsells American whiskey by far. And those prices, especially for the really higher end stuff, have been going 
crazy. I think, you know, it might be a little out of reach of a lot of people too. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like international markets are asking for it. There's just a lot more demand. Boy, what that stat didn't say, it didn't break it down to blended or single malt. So I think, you know, the the old, uh, your, your grandpa drinking scotch and soda, that was, you know, not a, not a single malt. You know, that was a cheap blend, you know. So yeah. it, it'd be interesting to see maybe the, you know, the, the sales of blended whiskey might be way down, blended scotch may be way down and the, and the, and the uh, single malts or the more expensive stuff may be way up, you know. Yeah, I'd, I'd want to see it broken up. I have to say, too, I'm, I'm kind of excited. Recently, I've been for scotch stuff, championing the blends a little bit. They, they get poo-pooed in a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, we forget in the past that was a way for these producers to achieve consistency and get a consistent flavor profile, which I think is, is important. You know, the blending was really considered an art. Right. Instead, so when you see these American blended whiskeys, which are, I don't want to say rare, but a lot more rare, you know, a lot of times you, you might be dealing with grain-neutral spirits, basically vodka, you know, and it's, but some of the blending spirits used used for for scotch, you know, they've been aged a little bit, so they're they're of a little different, you know, and they were distilled out at a slightly lower proof. Um, you know, there's a lot to be said for some of these blends. There's some great ones, really great ones. Yeah, you know, it's like I, I say in the book a lot. You know, we taste with our our minds as much as our senses, and those came to be seen as a lesser quality product. But I don't know if that's always fair. Um, yeah, I. Well, I mean, you know, my, my, uh, not to single anybody out, but my brother-in-laws, you know, they, they all love their single malts and, uh, I can't, you know, last time we were hanging out on a holiday drinking some single malt, I, I kind of worked into the conversation asking them what exactly that meant and none of them knew. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I actually love playing these little, these little games <laughs> yeah. where I would love to pour someone a blend and, you know, you, you could even say it's something else and see how their eyes kind of, you know, roll back in their head, you know, if it's like yeah. tell them it's something much more fancy. My dad actually had a ton of Pappy at home. Oh, really? um, no, no longer. And he had bought it way before it became, yeah. you know, really sought after. And we were like, you know, it's good, but it's not that good. I remember when it was readily available, I would pass it up quite often. <laughs> and when he had friends bring it up, I was like, just give it to him. You know, I, I really try to emphasize not making, not fetishizing this stuff the way that some people do. I've never tried it. <laughs> and, you know, and it's good. It's good. It's fine. It's like, it's not, I don't really think it's worth the effort, you know, waiting in the line or just trying to make the liquor store connections you need today to get it. Um, but he, my dad would just started giving it out to friends, give him a mini bottle, he'd pour him a bottle. And I was like, what are the reactions? And he said it was skewed about half, about half were people would just say, wait, this is what the big deal is about. Like uh, it's fine. It's, it's bourbon, you know, whatever. Yeah. And then the other half, their eyes would sort of <laughs> roll back in their heads. There was a great story. It didn't go in the book, but one of the master distillers told me this and he said that they meet every few months, a few times a year for a lunch. And all of them will bring these really special bottles to this lunch. You know, they've kind of squirreled the way out of their own stocks. These are the big Kentucky distillers, mm. the big distillers. And he said that at one of these lunches, one of the distillers brought this 23-year-old whiskey, mm. bourbon. Mm-hmm. Because they passed it around. And he goes, I taste And I love this expression. You know, it tastes like sucking on a pencil. <laughs> he was like, man, it, was, it had gone past the pale. It was way too woody. It was like a pile of wood, you know, too many mm. tan. It was just overaged. Right. But, you know, that kind of stuff, it's rare. It's hard to find. It takes a long time to make. So people naturally go after it. They want it, you know, because it's not balanced. And he goes, I'm tasting it. I'm like, this is, this is, this is bad. And so I look around at all these other master distillers. And he goes, some of them, we make eye contact. and We shared that moment where it's like, you know, this isn't very good. And I know this isn't very good. <laughs> and he goes, then these master distillers, you know, and taste is subjective. He goes, then some of them 
are fawning over it, like, oh, you know, moaning and groaning about how great it is. And he goes, and some of us are like, what, what are they doing? Yeah, I thought that was a really great lesson sort of in connoisseurship. Nice. It, it's, it's in our minds so half the time. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's well, everything plays into how it tastes, you know, your, your, yeah. your reaction to it. Uh, I was actually speaking to a, um, wine expert recently on the show and she, she hates blind tasting. She hates, she just, she won't do it. <laughs> Cause really why? Just because it's so much, you know, she's a certified sommelier and she's, you know, more than qualified, but she, you know, that just that thing of, you know, trying to trick somebody putting something in the wrong bottle or whatever, you know, she just hates that, you know, because <laughs> she says, you know, the everything plays into your experience, you know, it's not just a hundred percent a matter of taste. I, I can see that becoming a big gotcha thing. There are actually some whiskey writers um, I was talking to and one of them was telling me about how he was at a tasting and they wanted to do a blind tasting. What was Let's see if you can pick out the rye. Held him. He was like, oh, I can do this. And he was like, don't do it, don't do it. It's just a trick. Yep. And he was like, what do you mean? This, this other writer was like, well, Nashville, it's really not as important as people say it is. The barrel really is so important to the flavor. And he goes, I guarantee you they'll have a bottle of old grand, they'll have a glass of old granddad in there, one of these high rye bourbons. It tastes very rye like. Mm-hmm. And he goes, and then you've got some rye whiskeys, such as Rittenhouse, that can easily pass for a bourbon. You know, and they're very heavy in their corn ton- content anyway. Right. And he goes, I guarantee you everyone's going to pick the bourbon as the rye, the old granddad, yeah. and everyone will be fooled. And then this guy doing the tasting is going to be like, ha, 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 I got you. He goes, just hold back and let's see how it plays out. Yeah. They hold back. And sure enough, that's exactly how it, how it went down. Yeah. Well, bourbon can be, can be 49% rye. And still call it bourbon, so. <laughs> yeah, oh, right, which, yeah, exactly. So it's funny, too, how people use some of these little tiny points of connoisseurship in competition, yeah. um, you know, which after a while it can get really tiring. But, you know, you'll have geeks kind of circling around each other. You know, it's like a dogfight or something, you know, <laughs> kind of like who knows more, who can detect more. Have you been to this distillery? Have you been to that? And it's kind of this this competition in a way, um, you know, kind of prove that you know more than in the next guy. And that can get a little tiring sometimes, but a lot of that, you know, what we're just talking about, I think is part of that kind of stuff too. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, and I, I'm sure most of us could pick out a, uh, rye made with hundred percent rye as opposed to a bourbon made with hundred percent corn or, you know, 80%. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I won't take up any more, more of your time. I sure appreciate it. And no, it's been fun. Yeah. Same here, Reed. Thanks again, Reed, and cheers. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Bye now. Bye. Interesting conversation there. Hey, remember to stay tuned to the very end of the podcast for our toast. It's coming up. But pick up uh, Bourbon Empire, the past and future of America's whiskey by Reed Mittenbuehler. And if you go to bartenderjourney.net, you'll see a link to it, a link to Amazon. And you can uh, help out the show a little bit by clicking through bartenderjourney.net to get there. And it doesn't cost you any extra. And while you're at bartenderjourney.net, you can sign up for 30 days free of Amazon Prime. That gets you free shipping. And it gets you to Amazon's video streaming service as well. Well, my name is Brian Vincent Weber. Please feel free to email me for any reason. You can email me at vince.com bartender at gmail.com you can find me on twitter at barkeep tips you can search uh, facebook for bartender journey and like i said bartenderjourney.net is the website and uh you can you can leave a comment there too if you like and i uh, love to hear from you love to hear from the listeners so all right here's our toast may the sun shine all day long everything go right and nothing go wrong may those you love bring love back to you and may all the wishes you wish come true Cheers. We'll see you next time on Bartender Journey.